Good morning. Good morning, Adam. How's everybody doing? Good. It's good to see you guys here today. Happy Sunday. This is my favorite weekend of the year. This is my favorite Sunday of the year because of an extra hour of sleep. It really is awesome. Uh, we were just doing setup in here earlier, and I said, we should do this every, every week. And they're like, well, then you'd have like, so some days were like your nights and days are flip-flopped. And I was like, it doesn't matter. You just get an extra hour of sleep every Sunday. I think that would be awesome. So uh, for those of you who are new, my name's Adam Brunson. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Jake Box, who's our lead pastor, he and his wife Krista are away for the weekend, uh, getting away together, investing in their marriage, and uh, it's a great thing to do. So we're happy, we're happy to have them gone. Is really what we are. Uh, take that in context, of course. Um, just a little bit about myself. This morning, uh, after we were doing setup, I had not eaten anything yet, so I ran up to Randall's to buy some junk food for breakfast. And the guy checking out said, Oh, you look like Mr. Rogers. And I've seen this guy, I've actually done this same move several times on Sunday morning now, going to Randall's, and he's always the one checker that's actually there, you know, before 8 a.m., and he's a really nice guy. In fact, he's a tremendously nice guy. And so I know he was somehow trying to make a friendly gesture. I wasn't catching it. <laughs> okay, turn to, to Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read this passage. We're going to dive uh, right in. I'll explain a, a bit as we go. Uh, we're beginning a new series today, though. And uh, we're going to read today Luke chapter 15, uh, the first 10 verses. If you uh, don't have a Bible, just so you know in the future, uh, we have some on a table out here in the hallway. Those for you, you can either use here or actually a gift for you if you don't have a Bible. Uh, we certainly value teaching directly from the Word of God and, and uh, try to, to base uh, our lives and our church and teaching on it. Uh, on that note, Luke chapter 15 uh, says this, so, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having lost 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the whole house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Uh, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, all of these parables, there's actually three parables in Luke 15. We, we're kind of looking at two today. We're really going to focus in on, on the one, the first one there. Um, all three of these parables Jesus tells are in response to, we'll, we'll look at it a couple times here, but these first couple verses where you've got this scenario. They're not just, these weren't just three stories Jesus uh, thought he would tell. There uh, was a trigger, and the trigger was the Pharisees grumbling here. Uh, which is really important to us grasping this story, but also why we're talking about it here. Um, there, the parables, and really parables just in general, you might say, are kind of uh, like an extended metaphor. 
You know, that Jesus is trying to, to, to teach something through the picture here. And so what, really what we're going to do today is kind of walk through three aspects of the imagery that he's, he's trying to create, really to, to get at what Jesus is trying to communicate here. So to do that, we're going to look at the sheep in this story. We're going to look at how the shepherd pursues the sheep. You might say the search itself. And then we'll look at the shepherd. So the sheep, the search itself, and the shepherd. Uh, so to begin with, the sheep. So... Here we are in the middle of uh, a city in the West, uh, in modern America. When we hear sheep, we tend to think of fluffy little lambs and still waters and quiet pastures and things like that, right? Warm, warm cozy thoughts. You can't really understand this parable, though, it, from that vantage point. When Jesus calls a sheep, this is quite clearly uh, a well-meant, hang with me here, spiritual insult. Well, well meant spiritual insult. Um, so I found this. It was a guy who went into ministry, a pastor, um, who before he was a pastor was a shepherd. This might be helpful here. Just listen a little bit of what, how he described his past doing that. A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses direction continually in a way that a cat or a dog never does. And even when you find a lost uh, sheep, the lost sheep rushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its forelegs and hind legs together, throw it over your shoulder and carry it home. Uh, that's the way to save a lost sheep. So we're going to begin here by meditating on this metaphor. <laughs> I'm actually not kidding. There's two, two things here just about this part, about the sheep. Like, Hang with it here. Like the Bible is actually trying to teach us something about ourselves. Like it's trying to say something here that I think we need to hear. I know I do. Um, at first, it teaches us that really that we need to be rescued, like sheep. That that we need that. Now, an author that I really like to listen. It wasn't in a book, but I heard him talking on this, and he was saying one of the things that he and his wife liked to do for vacation uh, was travel, and they particularly loved Britain. Um, now, I've had other friends travel there, and they love to see the shows and do downtown London and all that stuff. But this, he loved to uh, get, like, the backcountry guide. They'd rent a car and try to get away from, you know, the tourist hotspots. And he was, ta- I heard, just hear him talking about it. He would say, like, even as a tourist, he could get to places where lots of sheep, even occasionally would see sheep grazing and grazing to the point where they're a little oblivious to what they're doing or where they're, they're, they're eating, and they'll kind of follow the, the path where there's grass up to a really precarious position. Occasionally even eating themselves to a point where they like can't get down and they fall. You know, maybe even to their death. That, and I just found that really kind of uh, you know, fitting here, even what this one you know, pastor is talking about, right? That sometimes they'll fall to the ground in death pursuing something that they're going to eat. Now, I know in, in this room, just, uh, know, knowing... A lot of y'all, different uh, church traditions, different backgrounds. Now, some of you might have grown up in a tradition where you know the priest minister uh, gives you uh, the Lord's Supper, communion. Right? You're, you're celebrating this still, and as he's giving you the bread, says, uh, "Feed on him in your heart by faith. Feed on him in your heart by faith." Now that assumes that. Our hearts are feeding on something, right? That there's some hope, there's some joy, there's something that our hearts are, are resting themselves on, that we're looking to, uh, to obtain life, to obtain joy, identity, worth, all those things, right? 
you know, it, it might be our image, might be status, uh, could be wealth, could be, you know, Mr. or Mrs. X uh, really loving us uh, or loving us back. Um, but if there's, if there's something that our souls are feeding on that's not Jesus, we're, we're like that sheep, you know, up on the cliff, you might say. As some of this imagery Jesus is trying to flesh out for, you know, maybe it's this way. Um, I feel the need to say this as much to myself as anyone else, but, you know, you're dating uh, someone that you really you, you love, you hope to marry uh, even. It's, it's, that's one thing to, to want that, right, to be in that scenario. It's another to have uh, our hopes in this person to such a degree that it's everything to us, Right? That they fill uh, not, not only the role that, that uh, a person can fill, but a bigger, a bigger role than, that, than even that. You know, you might even say um, a job. You know, it's one thing to work towards, look for a job in a, cert, a certain field or certain industry or with a certain, uh, you know, firm uh, kind of deal. It's a whole other thing to, to, um, to rest everything into obtaining it or, or to maintaining it, that if the relationship breaks off or I don't get, get that job or keep that, that one deal, I'm crushed. There, there's no uh, life, uh, there's no self left in me, right? Like everything banked on that deal. Um, it's, you know, it's like I'm a sheep on a ledge, you might say. No hope left. Um, Jesus might have even, in some of his analogies, been thinking back to a lot of Isaiah Isaiah 53, 6 says this, that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone uh, to his own way. So Jesus' cozy little metaphor here with us clearly paints us as sheep. Uh, that we need to be rescued. But if you, I think, putting ourselves in the shoes a little bit more, it's not only, it's not only is he saying that we need to be rescued, He's trying to show us, I think, how thoroughly we need to be rescued. So if you even think about like what I was telling you about, I read from that uh, guy had been a shepherd. A cat or a dog, if, if he gets lost, you find him and uh, he might walk back with you, right? Or in some scenarios, uh, find his way home um, on, on his own. But a sheep won't do that. You find him and uh, he's not just going to like, you know... <laughs> That was my sheepwalk. Uh, <laughs> he's not going to sheepwalk back with you all the way to your house. This is why I'm glad we record audio, not video. Um, even this guy was saying, remember what he said? If you, find, if you find your lost sheep, your job's not over. He won't just follow you home. You have to grab it, uh, tie it, carry it. Um, if, you're, if your dog's lost, you might be able to point it. He might walk home with you, but not, but not a sheep. The shepherd has to do everything for the sheep. The sheep can contribute nothing to its salvation, you might say. In, in traditional language, you know, Jesus' metaphor here, in traditional language, he's saying that we're utterly and completely lost. This is what he's saying. And that it would not have helped if God had just sent us uh, a good teacher, I just sent us someone to give an inspiring uh, message, uh, you know, pointers, a shot in the arm kind of a deal. That, that uh, you know, would not have worked. 
essentially would have, would have said, you know, well, let me say it this way. I've heard people a lot of times, I've either asked them this question or heard people answering this question a lot. You know, what, is, what does it mean uh, to be a Christian? And I'll hear the answer a lot. It means um, trying very hard to live up to the example of Jesus, trying to emulate his life with my, with my behavior and, and that sort of a deal. I think with Jesus' metaphor here, that would mean we're more like a cat or a dog, you know, that we just need pointers and we can get back on the right course kind of a deal, right? But he's saying we're sheep. <laughs> it, it runs deeper than that. The problem runs deeper than that. Uh, we need more than moral pointers. We need a shepherd who can carry us home and to do all the work. Another place in Matthew, Jesus says this, you might remember. Um, he says, I keep sending you sages and wise men, and you keep killing them all. I guess that's like sheep with teeth or something like that. I don't know. But, but he's trying to say, like, more than that, right? Like, we, we needed more than sages and wise people. We need a savior, someone who does everything for us, who lived the life we should have lived, who died the death we should have died, to bring us all the way home. Now, ha- hang with me here. If this whole deal, like I'm talking about, you know, traditional language, right? This is the doctrine. You might say this is the doctrine of original sin, and Jesus is trying to paint in this metaphor here. Now, I've spent the better part of my life in Austin, better part of my recent life here in central Austin, enough to know this doctrine is not, uh, is not a popular thought. It, it might be more than that, right? This might be uh, disdained, like an awful concept. Um, you know, for at least the last 200 years, you know, in the West, you might say, you say, just... Even our quick history, all heard in school, right, since the Enlightenment, it's taught us more or less uh, to reject the Christian doctrine of original sin, right? Um, that it's, uh, our, you know, our college professors, just writers, the cultural elite, all, all, that kind, all those deals, right, that this uh, needs to be disdained. Without getting too far in, in the weeds here, just think of just the, the basic people you remember from from there, right? Like Rousseau, we got his big idea of people being born essentially good, right? Like, remember reading about this in your history books a little bit? You know, like this, this was the dominant original thought coming out of the Enlightenment as it's, as it's trying to explain the nature of, of humankind, right? And yet, I, here we stand in our culture a little bit, I think, in a confused state because 200 years later, and we've seen two world wars, you know, global terrorism. Probably not a person in this room that hasn't been in disillusion with uh, some type of leader somewhere, right? Like all of this deal, like there's a part in which we know that that was wrong, you know? Uh, that, that thought that we're just the innocence of humanity, right? Like in a way, we know, we know that to be wrong. And yet our culture, by and large, still rejects this doctrine of original sin, um, I found this book that was helpful for me. Um, this guy named uh, Alan Jacobs, he wrote a book, a little bit looking, he's a Christian author, but he's writing on the history of this doctrine of original sin. And in it, one of the things, he quotes actually a secular critic writing about it, and he says this, his name is uh, Randall Gerald. He says, most of us know that Rousseau was wrong. That man, when you knock his chains off, set up the death camps. Soon we will know everything that the 18th century didn't know about the human capacity for greed and violence. 
and a little bit later in the book, like this is Alan Jacobs again who wrote the book, says this himself. He says, uh, Modern culture says that it has left behind Christianity's repulsive doctrine of original sin. But it also says that it has left behind Rousseau's naivete about humankind. So where the hell are we? As a quote. I'm just reading the book. It's in the book. But isn't that, a, that's the question, right? We're, we're in a state of confusion. Like we're, it's like we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. One of them has to be true. And, and let me just say this, you know, if, if you are the person here, uh, you know, that's in Austin tonight and you're struggling with this doctrine of sin, um, I don't want to say this, like, give it time, <laughs> right? Like the facts, uh, the facts pull it back eventually, um, I just remember reading this at one point, and I think he was talking about the doctrine of sin, but Blaise Pascal, who is in some ways a theologian, but also like mathematician, just a really generally smart guy, says this. He says, nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine. And I think he was talking about this doctrine of original sin. He says, and yet, but for this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. And I think that's a little bit of the tension, you know, that Jesus is trying to drum up when he uses this imagery of, uh, of the sheep. So that, that's the sheep. It's, that's what we learn from the sheep. <laughs> Jesus is saying some, some big stuff here, I, I know. Uh, next, the search itself. Like, think about the imagery of the story, right? You've got the lost sheep and the, the shepherd that leaves. He searches for the one. We're going to look at that now. Now, again, I, I mentioned this at the beginning. These uh, three parables were not told in a vacuum. Uh, look real quickly at the first two verses because they're just so important for getting the, uh, what, why Jesus is communicating this and even why we're communicating this here. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. This is the key word. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them, receives sinners and eats with them. Another, other translations use the word murmuring, which is just an awesome word. But this is, it's this grumbling, murmuring deal that the Pharisees are doing about Jesus because of the crowd that he's hanging with and, and eating with. Like that is the situation that Jesus brings up as the trigger for him telling these three stories. And uh, now, in our, you know, in our culture, it's, it is a neat thing to have someone in your home and to share a meal together. I will not say no to any of your invitations to do such, especially if you're a really good cook. Thank you, Blake. Uh, thank you, Beth. Uh, no, just kidding. I won't go all the way around the room. But in Jewish culture, it was, it was even bigger. Uh, it was rooted in, in some of their, their, even their doctrine. Like, to share a meal around the table, the table was almost like a mini version of the tabernacle in that you shared uh, your most intimate life there. And so one of the things the Pharisees and teachers of the law would not have done is the very thing Jesus is, is doing here. In, in other words, when Jesus was doing this, essentially he's saying to them, I want to be in community with you. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law are, are, are grumbling, maybe a little dumbfounded. And just think about it. Like, why? You know, why is, why is he, why are they dumbfounded about this? In a way, it's a gesture of community. It, it's, you know, Jesus presented himself as, as a rabbi, right? A spiritual teacher. He's trying to make a faith community that includes sinners. <laughs> and up until this point, I mean, put yourself in the Pharisees' shoes for a second. I mean, up until this point, 
that's not who's made up a spiritual community. It's been people who have obeyed God and have done all the practices, and at least in their own eyes, right? Like, that's who you build a spiritual community with. You don't include these other people. They're not doing it. That's why they're not in. And yet Jesus is dining with them. And it, it even says, he, um, well, no, I'm thinking of another story. It's Zacchaeus, but it's another instance where the Pharisees grumble because Jesus is eating with sinners. But it even says he did it regularly. Like this was often how Jesus spent his time with these kind of people. And uh, they're, they're mad about it. Um, and you can see, it brings up the subject in the Pharisees. It brings up these, these three parables. It's the, it's the reason why we can spend four weeks talking about this, even as a church. Like, how, how can we, we be this kind of community uh, that can be changed by the gospel, how, how grace can do something unique among us and have a lot to talk about? Um, but look here real quickly here. If you, if you look again, glance down at, at uh, Luke 15, there's a theme that comes up a lot, and it's this theme of joy. Um, if you see verse 6, he says, uh, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep. Um, verse 9, Rejoice with me, I found my coin. Uh, verse Both 7 and 10 say essentially the same thing. There's more joy in heaven over a sinner that repents. There's this joy concept that keeps coming up. Uh, in a way, it's, it's like Jesus is saying this, and it's really amazing if you think about that, he can say this. It's like he's saying, I've come from this community, community in heaven, that what do they celebrate? They celebrate sinners saved by grace. Like this, this is where I've, where, uh, I've come from. It's what, it's what gets a party thrown there. Um, and it's, it's what brings joy there. And essentially, he, Jesus is saying, this is the kind of community I'm trying to create here. Here, among us, right? Even here, mid, you know, Midtown Church, right? This is, this is what he's saying. Let, let me step back for just a second and ask the question. You know, what do, we, what do we mean by community? And I have to do a little dictionary definition here. This didn't come from the Bible. But I think this really mirrors the concept that you see in the Bible. I want to try to flesh this out. So hang with me here. Community. A group of individuals. That's important. A group of individuals who've been bonded into a body through an intense common experience. A group of individuals who've been bonded into a body through uh, an intense common experience. So, uh, Kendall and I have watched through, uh, I don't know if any of y'all have seen the HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers. Show of hands. Okay, a few. More respect for those hands. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. But I, I really do love this series. It's, it's really well written, really well told. I love the, a couple of the characters, Colonel Winters particularly. Just one of the best characters, I think, in film. And in this story, it's just World War II, right? You don't need to, even if you haven't watched it, this is easy, right? You've got these guys from, from various parts of America uh, pulled uh, together into a troop and put into the foxholes, put in the trenches together, and they become, you know, it's the language from King Lear, right? They become a band of brothers. That it, 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 in the end, it didn't matter where they were from. It didn't matter their family background, social status, right? They were bonded. They're going to be friends for life. Some of you all had parents, grandparents that came out of World War II like that. I remember hearing some of those stories growing up. And the way they talked about those foxhole brothers, it was different, right? There was a little, there's, there, the tone in their voice was different. There was, some, there was a bond there that even I didn't really understand to a degree, right? And, you, and so you've got this intense experience that can create uh, this bond, right? This life 
and death experience that those people went through in really probably any war, but in that case, World War II. And if you think about it, like all of us have identity factors that we look to that help us, you know, kind of fill in the gaps. How do, how do we view ourselves? You know, I'm male, I'm female, I'm, you know, white, Asian, Hispanic, black, what, you know, whatever the case, that they, they, they affect how we view ourselves, right? Some of them aren't those type, you know, the other, they're uh, things like where I live, you know, I live in a cool central Austin, uh, a certain job, uh, maybe social circle that you feel like you really move well in. Uh, Maybe even on another side, like that, I keep a certain set of moral um, values and and really express those well in my life. Like those things I can look to, to fill in the blank for what gives me identity, meaning, value, joy um, in a way. It's some of those, you know, and they might be different for even each of us in this room, maybe more like kind of foundational in our life than others, you know, that we look to personally for those things. You know, and when you think back to something like this Band of Brothers kind of idea, right, um, that it didn't matter, it didn't matter what those deals were. Uh, this, this strong experience could uh, go underneath them, right? Uh, they could be create a bond that was... You know, went under those other walls, you might say. So with, I mean, hang with that thought here, because you don't need to turn here, but Ephesians 2, Paul is really describing something very similar. And I'll read it to you, just a couple sections of it. But just see, keep that imagery in your mind of, uh, you know, this, what we're talking about here, this type of community. Sorry, I, uh, I'm looking for it here. There we go. And at the very beginning of chapter 2, this is what he says. He says um, that you were dead, in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, and that God made us alive together in Christ. And in a way, like uh, inside Christianity, there is this life and death experience that's happened. We've been dead in our trespasses and sins. We've been made alive uh, in Christ. By grace, we've been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works uh, so that no one can boast. So, Track, track with the, the, the flow of the passage here. He's saying at the beginning, people who are in Christ have had this life and death experience. And at the end of chapter 2, this is what he's able to say. He says, the people who have had that experience uh, are, joined, are being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord where his spirit dwells. It's a, another metaphor, right? Like he's, you've got these people that have gone through this life and death experience of coming to know Christ, dying to sin, being ra- raised in Christ. And as a result... They're fit together to, to form a temple of sorts, right? Like God can live in their midst is, is, is what he's giving this uh, picture of. Like what's Jesus saying with, with this whole deal and about how he searches for us? Um, so one thing he's not saying, you, you look at um, a lot of the world religion teachings other religions, and it's essentially if, if you keep this set of moral code or do these rituals, then you can attain to uh, the divine or God in some way. You know, keep the rules, keep the rituals, you can obtain to the divine. Going back to the original analogy, like, that would be as if I'm a, I'm a cat or a dog. <laughs> I just needed pointers to get me back on the right course. But Jesus is not saying that. He says, uh, I am a sheep. That I need more than that. I don't, I don't need uh, an inspiration or a religious teacher or pointer. I need, I need a shepherd who can pick me up and carry me all the way back. In the gospel, we're sheep. 
and we can contribute nothing to our salvation. Uh, For those who are in Christ, it's like dying and being reborn, not adding something or getting a shot in the arm. Uh, You realize, I've been feeding my soul on something that can kill me, or lots of somethings. I've been running away from my shepherd. But when you look at the shepherd coming after the sheep, we're not just infinitely lost. We're infinitely loved. We're infinitely treasured. You know, we are that sheep that he ran after. We are the coin that she searched after and lit the lamp and, and threw the party and pulled the friends together and celebrated. Like, it's not just infinitely lost. It's infinitely loved. It's infinitely treasured. You know, like this is what he's trying to communicate. And the one is the gateway to understanding the other, right? Um, and it's so like, if you're Christian here and, and the, the gospel has dawned on you like that, like, what does that do? All those other identity factors that, that I, I point to, it, it just it blows them out of the water. Um, it, you can, it can create a bond between people that it doesn't, these things become inconsequential. Um, they become, it becomes more foundational. Um, because think about them. The, the other identity factors you know, maybe where I went to school, uh, this person uh, I'm, I'm with, um, my family, my clean, my cleaned up, nice family, uh, whatever. You know, f- I don't, I don't mean that. Con- like I've had, <laughs> I've had these, right? I, I'm not saying this constantly. Um, these things they they do create a joy in us, but they create a joy that automatically uh, makes us feel superior. And just think about it, right? Like. If I'm finding a joy in that I, got, I went to such and such school, uh, the joy comes in the contrast. They didn't get in, right? Uh, their family's a mess. Mine's not. There's a joy there, but it's a joy that makes you feel superior. Um, even, and this has been a lot of my story, my struggle, uh, my moral performance that, that I can look to. Like, I'm doing the, the things. I'm this moral person, and they're not. And, and I, I can take a joy in that that makes me into a superior person. That It just it automatically does that. And what Jesus is saying is he wants to give us a joy that's different than those that we can begin to build a real kind of community on. And let, me, let me flesh that out in two ways. So first, if our identity is that we are it's through it's through through Christ. If our identity becomes, I'm a sinner who's saved by grace. I can't look down on anybody else, right? I couldn't I couldn't find acceptance. I couldn't find uh, this deal with God, except through that gateway of humility, except by recognizing need, right? Um, it's like this. Uh, J. D. Greer he wrote a great book. If you haven't read it, it's called it's just called Gospel, <laughs> and he says this. He says when you've tasted. The grace of the gospel, no relationship, no matter how wrong or hurtful or annoying, looks the same to you. You'll see yourself as first sinner and second as sinned against. And when that happens, your entire disposition towards others' offenses toward you will change. The clearest mark of God's grace in your life is a generous spirit towards others. 
And those of you who've seen that in other people, you know it. It's just like, oh, it's like breathing in fresh air when, you, when you're around someone like that, right? And you, and you experience that graciousness. Like the gospel can do that individually in us that can create this great environment for community to grow. But second, it can also create a bond inside for people who are believers uh, in Christ. You know, other Christians, it can create a bond inside because we've had this life and death type experience of dying to ourselves, coming alive because of Christ, um, one of repentance and faith, experiencing grace in the gospel that we share with others. It's, it's earlier, the Ephesians deal. It's why Paul can say, uh, because we've died to our sins and we're alive with Christ, that we can, we're fitted together into this temple of sorts that God's, where God's spirit dwells. That's the idea, right? And if you think about it, like, okay, so Paul, a Jew, it just, I can't help but think he's looking backwards to the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with it, it's okay. Like the nation of Israel that God, you know, grew and worked with, they reached this point where they were going to build uh, the temple. And David wanted to do it. King David, who everyone's heard of, uh, he couldn't. God said, no, but your son Solomon will. And he gave him this elaborate set of instructions that you can read. Um, one of the things they did, so when they, they, they've got the site where they're going to build it, the stonemasons in the quarry, you read in First Kings 6, when they would chisel out the rocks that they would later transport, which were enormous, by the way. It's kind of funny modern marble, but that's a rabbit trail. These enormous stones, uh, they were chiseled so well that when they got them to the site where they're putting up the temple, it goes up in silence. You know, you don't hear a chisel, you don't hear a hammer. They didn't even use mortar. Like, they're just chiseled. It, it, the, the quarryists, people, did such a good job that the rocks that came out of it fit I think that's what Paul's thinking of, right? When he says, if you've been to the quarry, you fit with other rocks that have been to the quarry. I mean, just think about that. Like, this is rich. If, like, if you're a Christian, maybe you've experienced this, and, and you meet another one, that there's a bond there. Like, I know I've told, probably told this a lot of y'all because they've been so impactful in my own life, but each of the last three years, I've been to India uh, on mission trips, working with local churches there, and we're most often working in more rural areas. And by and large, you're, you're not talking to Christians, kind of while you're there a little bit, but uh, you find some. And, you know, here, I'm this young, white, male American. And through a translator, you give me 20 minutes with a, a 70-year-old Indian woman who knows Christ you give us 20 minutes to talk about him, and, and I feel it. Man, there's this bond there. You, you both know what he's done for you. You've, you've experienced that, that deal that Paul's talking about, that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and now I'm alive in Christ. And she knows it, you know? And, and you could, I would just say it this way. Like, if you're a Christian, you, you've, you've felt that. But maybe you haven't, you know? Maybe you're in here and you'd say, uh, I think I'm a Christian, but when I think about um, people of other political parties, they, they say that they're a Christian, but I just, <laughs> I just don't like them, <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, or, or fill in the blank with, with the other sticking point. Um, you know, m- maybe there's a part that, that you're culturally, culturally a Christian, you haven't, as Paul's talking about, been to the quarry, the life and death experience. 
Maybe you haven't experienced that yet. Or maybe, you know, maybe you are. Maybe, maybe you've been at that place where, okay, I have, I have enough understanding of my need, enough recognition of what God wants to give me in Christ that, I, that I've expressed faith. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a, I'm a Christian. But you have, and this is me. I've been here a lot. I still have so much in this. But you haven't dwelt like long enough, deeply enough on the richness of this gospel to break through more parts of pride and blind spots in your life that still allows room for this brokenness of relationship, segregation among people that say they're also in Christ, and yet there's not this kind of bond that Paul's talking about. Um, a book that's real helpful for me that Tim Chester and Steve Timmis wrote, um, a couple of neat guys live in England, pastors, they said this, uh, by becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my brothers and sisters. It's not that I belong to God and then I make a decision to join a local church. My being in Christ means being in Christ with others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. And the loyalties of the new community supersede even the loyalties of biology. What Jesus did for us in this deal has an incredible Incredible opportunity to create community among us. Another pastor, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, used to say it like this. He'd say, uh, you're a Christian first, you're white, black, Asian, Hispanic second. You know, you're, you're a Christian first, you're from, uh, you know, Germany or New York or Alabama or Austin second. You're, you're a Christian first. And when you've met a Christian from another class or race or gender, social circles, any of that, then it's real. There, there's this bond that, that you fit. So that's the search. That's what the search shows us. What great extent he went to for us. Let's just close real quickly. I want to look at the shepherd uh, in this imagery Jesus is telling here. Um, when you think about the story Jesus is telling and the shepherd that went on the search, he's, I mean, he's quite clearly calling himself a shepherd, right? And that's what he's doing in the, in the use of this story. And just, I mean, think about it, right? It's an astounding claim. Shepherds totally controlled the life of their sheep uh, by the nature of what we were talking about earlier. Uh, they weren't consultants uh, to their sheep. They didn't gather them together for monthly uh, talking points on better grazing and how to avoid the wolves and don't eat yourself off a cliff. The sheep were dependent on the shepherd, right? They were. That's, that's what it means to be, you know, that's why they needed a shepherd. He's clearly calling himself a shepherd and saying, by, their, by, by that saying, to us, give yourself to me completely. Completely, you know, give yourself to me. Now, that's not easy. It's not easy for us modern people that we don't like to release, release control. But here's why you should do it. If you think back to the Passover, often even the story we told when we're doing communion. We're not, we're not today, but <laughs> the Israelites would look back to Egypt, to their own history, right? When God brought them out in this really miraculous way. And you remember probably remember the elements, right? They, a family had to actually find a spotless, innocent lamb. Uh, it had to die. They killed it. Its blood goes around the doorpost. And when that happened, the angel of the Lord passes over that house, its life in exchange for their own. This was celebrated yearly, right? Passover for, for centuries, you know, all the way up. The very night before Jesus dies, he's celebrating Passover with his disciples. The very night. And uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the four Gospels, talk about this dinner, the Last Supper it's often called, 
um, famous painting of it, right? This Last Supper. It's really like, if you put yourself in the disciples' shoes, this would have been the strangest one that they had ever been a part of, though they probably would have done this yearly for their whole life. Uh, Because at every Passover meal, you've got the bread, uh, you've got the wine, and you've got the lamb. Uh, All three of those elements. But in all three of the Gospels that talk about it, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's the bread and the wine that Jesus takes with them, but there's no lamb uh, on the table. And now think back to John the Baptist early in the Gospels. If you haven't read this, all right. John the Baptist said of Jesus, the first time uh, as he started his ministry, he sees him coming down the road and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. The reason we can trust him is our shepherd became a sheep and died for us. And that's why we can trust him completely. You know, we can put ourselves in his arms because of that love, because of that outpouring, because of what he did for us. And I just want to call probably myself first, and if you'll get in line right behind me a second, call us to like put this in motion in Midtown. <laughs> Let this be true of us here. In two ways. It's really two ways to express the same thing. Let me say it like this, that it's ways for us to trust our shepherd by committing ourselves to one another. And the first is this. It's, it's, you've probably seen this already a lot throughout this deal. That we're committing ourselves to building a community that can be filled with beautiful, um, unified difference. We need to commit ourselves to that. You know, maybe, I, I don't know, but maybe, you know, if, you're, if you look around, if you're in this here, maybe you're newer and you're wondering, I don't know if I see myself in here. I don't know if I see my uh, kind of people, whatever. Um, let me just say it this way. Please stay around. We need you to be who God wants us to become. We need to be that to, to, to be the church that He envisioned, this unique kind of community. And maybe you need us. Second, this can be a place, this needs to be a place, this is possibly to be a place because of Jesus, where sinners are free to admit that they're sinners. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a lot of y'all know, he was German uh, pastor in the middle of World War II, decided not to flee um, at the risk of his own life. Um, great, great, he said this, every other community is based on performance. You're living up to a certain standard. Uh, therefore, you're never allowed to be a sinner or to be a failure. You might say, uh, you know, it's just like evolution. When uh, one of the herds starts to limp, the rest of them eat it. <laughs> we don't need to be that. Uh, he said this. Religiosity and morality permits no one to be a sinner. Everyone must conceal his sins from him or herself or others. But it's the grace of the gospel that's so hard for the religious to understand. It's been the story of my life. And I'm so grateful for the gospel. He says the grace of the gospel confronts us with the truth that says you are a sinner. You're a great desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner you are, to the God who loves you. He doesn't want anything from you, a sacrifice or a work. He wants you alone. This message is liberation through truth. The mask you have to wear before everyone else would do you no good before him or before your brothers and sisters. Confess your sins to one another 
and get the freedom of being sinners before one another. Confess your sins to one another and be healed. I just love that. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, um, if you become a member of Jesus' flock, it makes you so gentle with other people, with other brokennesses, with other messes that are just like your own, that it, it almost turns it on its head. Not, not only are we a community of sheep, but in a way, we, it's like we become a community of shepherds to each other, you know, healing one another, caring for one another, uh, ministering to each other. You know, how, how did that happen, you know? It happened because our great shepherd became a sheep to bear the cost of all of, of, all of our mess so that we can become, by his grace, shepherds to one another. It can be beautiful. Commit yourself to being a community based on grace. That's uh, my charge for us today. I'm going to close this in prayer. Um, as we do, one of the things I'm going to pray for today, and just want on your heart and mind and radar today, it uh, is a Sunday that's called Orphan Sunday. It's uh, a, a great rallying point for a lot of the uh, poor and needy throughout our world. Uh, we even have family in our own church. Just put them on the spot for a second here. Rob and Don, they are in process and potentially near to uh, adoption. I want to pray for them and just take the opportunity because of this day um, to pray a little more broadly as well. But uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Father, I, I just personally thank you for the liberating truth of what, what Jesus said in this, this story. That yes, uh, I am a sinner, and I'm incredibly broken, often more broken than I even know or see. But you see it. And yet, that didn't cause you to stay far away. Because you love, you love me, you love each one of us here. You love uh, every, every human on this planet. And you came near, that we can be brought near to you. And because of that, have community with one another. Uh, God, help me to grow in this. Help us as a church community to be that type of community that you envisioned, that your blood paved the way for. God, may we have that beautiful unified difference in Midtown Church that looks like Christ. Uh, Lord, we uh, lift to you as well just some of the tremendous needs we're aware of in the world, uh, even on Orphan Sunday. Um, Lord, uh, we even just specifically, uh, in our midst here, we pray for the Amados. Uh, thank you for their heart uh, to adopt. Pray that you'd pave the way for them uh, to, to bring that to completion and to strengthen them for that road that will be ahead, uh, even as we as a church will want to wrap our arms around them to help uh, in that endeavor. God, we love you. Thank you uh, that you have even adopted us as your own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.